this morning for our mothers. Father, there's certainly uh, many of us in this room today that will never fully appreciate firsthand the burden that uh, a mother carries. Uh, there's many, of course, in this room that do. But for those of us uh, who uh, just have to appreciate by observation and just, just being there, we thank you for uh, the beautiful design, uh, first of all, of family, but recognizing there's a, a nature to a mother's love that is found nowhere else. There, there's a warmth and there's a compassion and there's a provision and there's fierce protection that is born out of the heart of a mother that comes from the design of a gracious God. Thank you in the way that you have described, we find it in your word, the way you have described uh, the love uh, that a mother has for her children, the protection, the guidance that she gives. And uh, every single one of us, man or woman, we sit here today uh, having been blessed by the care and compassion and provision of our mother. As Gail mentioned earlier, we could tell all kinds of stories uh, one way or another where maybe we've had days that didn't feel like blessing. Maybe we had days where we felt disappointed or knew that we disappointed our mothers. And yet one of the things that's so beautiful about the, the, the provision and the care of our mothers is that it is relentless. It is returning. It is repeating. It is forgiving. So we thank you, God, of the uh, unimaginable number of ways in which you could have scripted and designed uh, the human experience. Uh, we, we thank you today for the blessing we've received from the ladies and the women that you've put ahead of us to provide for us. We ask your blessing as we spend this time together. And we do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just in case you've missed it, if any of you are sitting there, you're thinking, oh boy, yes, it is Mother's Day. So you've got a little bit of time right now to be thinking, what exactly am I going to do this afternoon to make it look like I didn't forget this? Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. You may or may not have heard that or sung that sometime before, but my guess is that what you didn't know that that comes from Numbers chapter 6, and it is the oldest known biblical fragment in archaeological find. Uh, I, I honest with you, I don't know what museum it sits in, but the oldest known piece of biblical literature that is literally on something you could touch if you can get past museum security <coughs> is that phrase. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace forever comes from the book of Numbers, and it's the oldest known piece that we have. Um, how many of you, just be honest for a second, coming through public school or high school, said that you, the, the subject that you just dreaded going to was history? History is so boring! Go ahead. Go ahead and say it. A few of you are willing to admit it. Well, I'm so sorry to hear that, because you're going to be sitting deep in history for the next few weeks. As we consider this question, where exactly did my Bible come from? Um, I had a really, really interesting question come last week, which I really appreciated, and the question was this, who cares? Like, this is an interesting 
thing for you to think of, Pastor Steve, but honestly, who cares where it came from? Can't I just go pick up my Bible off the shelf and just read it? Why does it matter where it came from? So let me jump to the end uh, a few weeks out and tell you the reason I want for us to consider this question and to get a sense of the history of it is because it can change the way you manage the book in your hand. It will change the way you interact with this book. Because if we perceive that our Bibles, uh, we know somewhere there's a passage, somewhere that says something about it being the breath of God or the wind of God or something like that. If we imagine this thing just divinely showing up one day and someone had to go get it and there it was, you know, shaft of light. We have the wrong understanding of our Bibles. Paul says in his letter to Timothy, it's recorded in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God breathed, the breath of God. But we read in Exodus that the tablets, when they were, when Moses brought them down from the mountain, were actually the work of God. And they're two different words. Uh, one is theanostos. Go ahead. Theanostos means the breath of God. Uh, and measi, or measi, means the work of God. They're not the same word, and they don't mean the same things. Your scripture, your Bible, is the breath of God. It was only the law that was actually the work of God, which means your Bible came to you not through some mystical poof appear. It came through the history of mankind, written down at certain times and certain places, collected together, and it took thousands of years to do it. So when you participate in the interaction with your Bible, you're participating in something that's got thousands and thousands of years of history behind it. We're going to see this morning, and we're going to finish with reading a psalm this morning that we actually read earlier. And if you were paying close attention, you may have been asking yourself, why are we reading a psalm like this on Mother's Day? You heard when Gail was reading, it talked about the anger of God and the wrath of God, and it's really an odd choice for a day like today. But we want to, I want to show you a little bit of the pieces that pull together before we read that psalm together again. Two different things. The Anastas is the breath of God. Uh, Maasai is the work of God. And your Bible is actually both. Now, we've got lots of gaps that we'd like to fill. When we look at this history, the further back you go in history, the harder it is to um, kind of fill in all the gaps and figure it out. But the first thing we want to note is that we have to get a little bit comfortable with the unknown. Probably considered the oldest book in the Bible is the story of Job. And if you've done any studies on Job or if you've done uh, anything with it at all, you may have found some people date it at one time or another. And so when I say we don't really know the date of this, you might say, well, I knew somebody who put a date on it. And I would say, congratulations. If you look hard enough, you'll find somebody else who will put a different date on it. And so Job is somewhere on the timeline. Now, we know that it's not earlier than a certain point because there was no such thing as writing previous to about 3000 BC. So uh, the story may have happened at any time, but it wasn't written down anywhere until at least somewhere between 3 and 2000 BC. I got a few posters that I want to put up this morning, and I'm going to need some help. So I'm just wondering if there's uh, any, maybe if there's a couple young guys who could help me out. I wonder if there's any, any two young guys in the room that kind of owe me a favor or let me think now. Oh, hey, Jesse, how you doing? How you doing? Ethan, what are you, what are you looking down? Why are you looking? You're not making eye contact with me. Tell you what, Ethan, come on up here for a second, because I'm going to need your help. Can you count backwards? Oh, yeah, don't lie to me. You can count backwards. Uh, this one, you actually don't need to count at all. If I say 
The, the story of Job cannot be earlier than 3000 BC. It's got to be somewhere that way. You know what? Pick a spot on the wall. It's got to be somewhere over there. Uh, you can't get it too far wrong if you just stick it on the wall for me there somewhere. Now that's the wrong spot. What are you doing? That, that's not... This wasn't meant to be a hard exercise for you. No, go, go down that way a little bit somewhere. Yeah, that looks good right there. Let's put Job there today. We don't really know. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Uh, Jesse, don't get too comfortable. I'll, I'll get to you. No, not now. Not now. I'll get to you. i got a few of them to go up. Um, Diet Dr. Pepper. That's all I'm going to say. It's just, this is going to be around for a while, you guys. Uh, if any of you are confused about what's going on, just find one of these two young guys after the service and say, what does Diet Dr. Pepper have to do with any of this? So much you owe me. This is going to take a while. Um, Earliest book in your Bible is Job, and we don't really know what the date is. But when we speak of ancient history, you speak in terms of hundreds of years. You don't speak in terms of days, weeks, months, or even tens of years. You speak in hundreds of years. And again, the further back we go, the harder it is. But if you think of 2000 BC, probably the best way to get your head around it is, think of Egypt. Egypt is dominating the world around 2000 BC. When we think about the earliest forms of script that show up out there and, the, and they start to develop into what we would consider language, it's Egypt who's leading that. In all of the world, it's Egypt who is providing the most developed sense of script. And by 2400 BC, uh, they've, they've, uh, sorry, by 1800 BC, they've created a 24 character alphabet. And they're starting to put it now into words. Um, it's worth noting for you, 1800 BC, They've created an alphabet. Between 1800 BC and 1500, Egypt has scripted uh, language. They've done a very good job of forming it into written code, and that's important for us to know in the church. Uh, writing is refined in its most developed form in Egypt by 1500 because there's a person that comes along in our biblical story around 1500 BC. Does anybody want to venture a guess as to who it is that shows up around 1500 BC? I heard it. Moses. Moses is born somewhere around 1500 BC. Now, why is that relevant that in Egypt they have developed language about the same time that Moses is born? Why does that matter to us when we're asking this question? Because we credit, come on up Jesse, we credit Moses as being the one who scripts and writes the first five books of our Bible. You know what the first five books of the Bible are called? Good job, man. I wasn't looking for the names. I was looking for the word Pentateuch, but you nailed it. Well done. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And that's going to happen about the time of Moses. Now, if you look at this timeline, you say 2,000 is there, 1,000 is there. You're going to go about halfway in between. You can put Moses on the wall for us over there. Thank you. The time frame in which Moses is born is right about then. We give the Exodus a date of about 1446 B.C., Moses is in his mid-50s when God calls him to do the unthinkable. Go back to Pharaoh, confront him, start a war with him, basically, and take away his entire workforce. So Moses is born about that time. Within 50 years, the exodus happens. So what you're seeing here is the black posters are historical events. The red posters represent the writing of. So Moses writes those books about the same time as the events themselves. Within 40 years after the exodus... He has written the entire Pentateuch. 
The earliest, earliest book of your Bible is Job. We're not quite sure when that would be. But the earliest beginnings to your Bible, you're talking about Genesis, is around 1400. Thanks, Jesse, that's good for now. Around 1400 B.C. is when Moses writes that. Uh, the psalm that we read this morning was Psalm 90. Before we started reading the psalm itself, did anybody notice the author of Psalm 90? Moses is the author of Psalm 90. Most of the uh, psalms that you're going to look at, you're going to credit to David. If you go to Psalm 73, you'll see it's identified by, written by somebody called Asaph. And if you dig back in the history books of the Old Testament, you'll find that Asaph was the original worship leader. Uh, Ethan, come on up here, grab this for me. You'll find that Asaph was the original worship leader. When David was king uh, over the kingdom of Israel, Asaph was the guy who gathered all together, planned it all out. That's the uh, Psalms, and you're going to go somewhere in that back corner over there, give us an idea of when most of those Psalms were written. Uh, Psalm 90 is one of the Psalms that is credited to Moses. Uh, scholars are going to argue there's a few others that could be credited to him as well, but Psalm 90 puts us about that date. So the reading that we uh, heard this morning lands right around 1400 or so. Moses receives the law from God at Sinai. Uh, the people are slaves in Egypt. The Exodus happens, 1446. And very shortly after that, the nation of Israel finds themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they camp there while Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the law from God. And shortly after that, he writes it. Um, the best way to understand, I think a couple weeks ago I said, when you think of the, the tablets, most often in the movies, they just show the Ten Commandments on there. But the tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain would have had the entire law scripted on them. In fact, uh, the book of Exodus tells us they were written front and back. And so they would have been, I don't know, maybe something like this, but they were actually literally written by God. And the best that we can do to piece together what was on those tablets would be the, the book of Leviticus. When we talk about Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the law of ancient Israel, we're talking about it's, it's completely written out for us in the book of Leviticus. It's repeated somewhat in the book of Exodus, but the fullness of the book of Leviticus was on those tablets. Now, there was something, um, when I was going through seminary and, and learning my classes there, learning from my classes there, uh, we took all kinds of different histories and, and whatnot. There was some, a piece of information that I received in one of my classes that I'm going to share with you this morning that was deeply, deeply unsettling for me. Because I grew up with a very base level understanding of this question. Where did the Bible come from? What's its history behind it? So as far as I was concerned, there was no such thing as any sense of law or understanding for the people of God until God spoke it into Moses about 1400 B.C. Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, that's when it happened. Previous to that, there was no such thing as law or code. It was the first time ever that humans had ever experienced any sense of a word from God. And in seminary, I, I was learning some history, and one day in class, I was introduced to this name, uh, Hammurabi, king of Hammurabi. He was the king of Babylon. And you won't find him mentioned anywhere in your Bible, uh, but archaeology tells us that Babylon was on the rise about the same time, maybe a little bit earlier than Egypt. And we find out that in and about uh, 1700s, approaching 1800, Hammurabi writes a code. Uh, Jesse, come on up here and help me here. Now this is where you got to do a little backwards counting, all right? 
So if that corner over there represents around 1,500, and, and you see the way the numbers go, if Hammurabi is around 1,700, is it later than Moses or is it before Moses? That's huge. The code of Hammurabi comes before Moses. So he's going to stick it on the wall there somewhere, get a sense. That works. And I'm going to show you this morning why when I heard this and why when I received this, it started to reform my understanding of the Bible. And it's, it's pretty evident when we take a look at a few passages. Um, throw the first one up on screen. Exodus 21 says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, you serve for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. It's just part of the law, part of the code. Here we are several thousand years later and we say, you know, hard to know exactly how does this apply to us today, what principle do we learn. More importantly, I want you to take a look at uh, a section from the Code of Hammurabi which says this, if an oblation comes due against a servant that's bound to service, sells the service, his wife or child, they work in the house for a period of three years and their freedom is reestablished in the fourth year. Oh, that's, that's interesting. You know, similar, Moses' law in Exodus is to a section from the Code of Hammurabi. Let, let me see another one. Uh, maybe in Exodus, a little bit later in the same chapter, if people quarrel with one another person, he hits one with a stone or their fist, and the victim does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable, if the other can get up and walk around. I mean, why don't we apply these laws anymore? <laughs> if, I, if I grab a stone and strike you with it, so long as you can still walk around, I'm good to go, right? Uh, we could have a separate discussion about why Old Testament law made sense the way it did at that time. However, if the guilty man must pay for the injured person, well, that's nice. For any loss of time to see that the victim is completely healed. I grew up thinking that none of this common sense, care for one another, existed at all until God spoke it to Moses. But then I found out the Code of Amurabi says this. If one has struck another in a brawl and causes injury, he must declare that he did not injure it deliberately. <laughs> not getting into that. And then he should pay for the person to attend his injury. Wow, look at that. Another example of where the law that God revealed to Moses sounds a lot like the code of Ramurabi. Show me one more. Same chapter, Exodus 21. But if there's serious injury, you take life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You've heard this before, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. We, you paraphrase that. And we think, well, it came from Moses. It was never spoken until Moses said it in the law. Except that the code of Ramurabi says if one has destroyed the eye of another member of an aristocracy, he must then destroy his own eye. It doesn't say what you're supposed to do if you've destroyed a peasant's eye, but if he's broken another's bone, they shall break his bone. I could give you a dozen other examples where the Mosaic law sounds a lot like the Code of Hammurabi, which was written almost 300 years earlier. Now, if we are convinced that our Bibles came through the breath of God, through the work of God, what is it about this that bothers you? What is it about the idea that there was law, there was code written before Moses' time, and in fact some of what we have in our Bible sounds somewhat like these other extra-biblical codes? Is there anything about that at all that bothers you? It did for me. Because I always thought that theophnustos, theanustos, breath of God means it wasn't even in circulation. No one was thinking it until God spoke it. 
But apparently, what Moses writes that we consider our Old Testament law was not only breathed of God, it was influenced by other things. Now, it's not surprising that about the time the Code of Hammurabi is written, a little bit earlier than that, Egypt had perfected language. Egypt was at the forefront of, of written code and helping people understand how to communicate in writing. Remind me again, where did Moses grow up? As a son of the Pharaoh, one of the most privileged young men in education. It is absolutely no question that Moses had studied the Code of Hammurabi. That long before he was ever on the mountain at Sinai, he had interacted with these laws. Suddenly, Theanustos, breath of God, the forming of my scripture, now takes on a new character. It's not just divinely and mystically poof into Moses' life. It's interacting with other things that's going on in Moses' life. And so the principle that we take is this, that the Word of God, and now I'm talking about the Bible that's in your hand, the Word of God is not only breathed of God, but it has a cultural, go ahead to the next screen please, it has a cultural and a historical background. Look at the formation of the book of Deuteronomy. If you were to sit down and do a, um, like an academic level of the study of the book of Deuteronomy, you would say this is, this is how it's formed. It's got an introduction or a preamble in the early parts, and then there's a section that tells you about the history of God's people. Uh, again, written by Moses at a time when he's standing at the, the gates to the promised land, and he's reflecting on, how did we get here? And so he gives them the preamble, he gives them the history, then he gives them the stipulations. These are the rules for us as we enter the land. This is how it's going to work. And then the latter section, chapter 27, is the documents. Here's the blessings of God. Here's what it means. Here's what the promise is. And the book closes with uh, curses and blessings. If you obey the law of God, this is what you should expect. If you choose not to obey God, these are going to be the outcomes. That's just a structural format of the book of Deuteronomy, which is, by the way, go ahead, almost identical to the structure of ancient Hittite treaties. If you go into the ancient world around uh, 1700, 1600 BC, a hundred years before Moses is born, you will find ancient treaties about how cultures, communities, and people are supposed to interact and what they're supposed to do. And the way that they write those documents are almost identical to the structure of Deuteronomy. Now, when I first started to receive some of this information, to be honest, it confused me. It had me thinking, well, I, what are you saying? Are you saying that our Bible isn't as valid as it's supposed to be because there were other documents that were written that were formed like this and looked like this ahead of time? So does it call into question, is my Bible trustworthy or am I just, are we just picking up things from other things and putting them together? What it meant for us is, go ahead to the next screen, is that our Bible has a cultural and historical grounding for us. That's relevant to you and I, because if it has a context for history and culture when it's written, then it also has those things for us today. It answers the question for us, is this relevant for me today? And the answer is, it was written in human history and human interaction and, and human consequence and things going on. And so as we keep that in mind, turn in your Bible to Psalm 90. I'm going to finish by reading this this morning. And I'll have you leave that on the screen for us. That the scriptures we hold in our hand are, as Paul said in his letter to Timothy, breathed of God. 
They came through us through the influence of God, the writings of men, but they are also grounded, also grounded in a culture and a history. There was a time and a place and a reason. And there was a time and a place and a reason for Moses to write this psalm. This is Moses who had been called by God into uh, responsibilities he didn't want and had asked to be excused from them. This is Moses who had seen the plagues fall on Egypt and the destruction that it brought. This is Moses who had led the people as they complained and whined and plagues were brought on them in the desert and there was death in the desert and there was suffering in the desert. And this is Moses who saw all these things happen. And if you get a handle on a bit of his life story and get a sense of what he experienced and what he walked through and what he knew and how he saw the power of God, now listen to the words that he writes in this psalm. Because it's not just poetry, it's not just ink on the page. He had a time and a place. Listen to the words of Moses. Lord, you've been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that's just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death, and they're like new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and it's withered. Where's he getting that imagery from? Grasses, there's dew in the morning, but by the, by the end of the day, it's dry and it's withered. Where has he spent years with the nation of Israel? He's seen that day after day after day in the desert. He's seen the hand of God work right in front of him. These are not just, this is not just abstract poetry coming to mind. This is something that he's seen. We're consumed by your anger. There's a story in Exodus told of two of Aaron's sons who, who come before the, the tabernacle and they come uninvited, and they come out of place. It's not their rightful place to do it. And they bring an offering, which was never asked for. It's completely out of the, the cycle of what God required of his people. And on the spot, the two of them are consumed by fire. And God speaks through Moses and says, Tell Aaron that nobody comes before me unless they are invited. I am the Lord your God. And Moses writes, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You've set out iniquities before us, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All the days passed under your wrath, we finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have strength. Yet the span is but trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is, great, is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and make us, and for as many years as we've seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to your children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, Lord, establish the work of our hands. You can hear it, can't you? You can hear the heart of a patriarch who has seen much happen to his people and know that where they are going, he knew, he knew full well that as they stepped into that land, 
they would not impress on the hearts of their children. And so you hear his heart break when he says, God, I pray that your blessing will come even as long as your anger. Because we are an unfaithful people. I love the fact that when we understand a little bit about the history, we can read our Bibles with a completely new appreciation for the language being is what it is. Can I ask our worship team to come on up here and join me and be prepared to respond in song this morning? As we interact with our Bibles, we are participating in a human story. By the time we're done, this timeline will circle the entire room, and there's a reason for that, because I want you to understand that that history didn't stop at some point. You're in it. The story that God is telling us doesn't end with the last word that was written in Scripture. It invites us in to participate in His story. And so, this morning, as we respond to this, I want us to consider that we are part of what God is doing in the history of His Word. Let's stand together and sing.